You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. It might be about managing people, or it might be about choosing a new culture, or it might be about our awareness of people's emotions through change. All of these actually are, I would say, common sense management models that should be more well-known. And if they were, everybody would feel happier at work. This week's guest on the Happier at Work podcast is Lucinda Carney, who is the host of HR Uprising podcast, which is one of my favourite HR podcasts, I have to say. And I'm absolutely delighted to have Lucinda as my guest today on the Happier at Work podcast. In addition to being the podcast host, Lucinda has lots of other accreditations and accolades to her name. So Lucinda is a chartered psychologist. She has more than 20 years of corporate HR experience. She's considered a thought leader in a range of people management and change related business topics. She's the founder and CEO of Actus Performance Management Software, which was launched in 2009 and has since gone from strength to strength with more than 70,000 users across the globe. Lucinda is also an accomplished speaker, consultant and coach. She was named Every Woman Tech Entrepreneur of the Year in 2016 and winner of one of the UK's top 10 women in business 2020 by Business Game Changer magazine. She is also the author of the book How to Be a Changed Superhero which was published in May 2020 and reached number one bestseller status in multiple Amazon categories. Myself and Lucinda start out by speaking about change and we kind of navigate through the change that has happened in the last year and a bit. But we also veer into lots of other interesting topics. So I really hope you enjoy today's podcast. As always, I will do a summary at the end of the key points and I'd love for you to stick around and get involved in the conversation over on LinkedIn. Welcome, Lucinda, to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you as my guest today. I'm a huge fan of your own podcast, The HR Uprising. So would you like to introduce yourself to listeners? Aoife, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be on someone else's podcast. And, and the whole Happier at Work thing, I think it's an amazing, uh, amazing contribution you're doing there with your podcast. Thank you so much. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um my interesting, I guess my my background is I, I describe it as too many years in corporate learning and development roles. I, I don't like to say how many now because it discloses how old I feel, uh, or maybe don't feel, or I am. Um, I'm also a chartered psychologist, uh, which makes me sadly very interested in things. And I say you, you're we're in a similar position there, aren't we? So I did my MSc some years ago and became chartered after that. But what I do currently is, as well as um, hosting the HR Uprising podcast, um, I'm also the founder and CEO of a software business. Um, it's called Actus. And um, what we do there, we provide performance management software. Now, I am not a, a tech expert, but I guess what I bring to the party is the whole concept and much of the challenges around software is all about culture change um, and supporting people uh, with achieving the results they hope to get out of the software, which is often not the case. Um, and that leads really on to, I think, the topic we're going to talk about today, which is all about change. And it was what led me to write the book, How to Be a Change Superhero, because I could see that in organisations, um, lots of people are challenged to lead change. They don't necessarily feel they've got the confidence or skills to lead change successfully. Um, and so I, I built, I 
pulled that together really as a toolkit for people who are delivering business change. And yes, we are here to talk about change. And I suppose like when we first started talking about what we might discuss on the podcast, to me, change, like change happened overnight this time last year, coming up on a year ago now, um, change happened overnight. So what what was the impact or what does that mean for organizations? Because suddenly there was no decision. It was just like straight away, we're all working from home and now we have to scramble to try and work out how to do this. Yes. I, I mean, I think it's essentially the, the world was thrown into the good old transition curve, which some of us may or may not have heard about. And I remember I was doing webinars around that time and, and giving um, examples of this. So, um, you know, so th- for those who haven't come across the transition curve, the transition curve, the original research came from a lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who talked about um, the way in which we all go through predictable emotions as we experience change. And this was related to people experiencing bereavement. And we go through these various, these various um, um, predictable emotions, and we can go backwards and forwards around this change curve. Now, in reality, we go through this um, in almost any change we experience, actually good or bad. The only difference is the pace at which we go through it. And if we as managers and HR understand um, you know, that this is, if we understand this natural process, then it's easier for us to recognize um, what the behaviors are that people are demonstrating and respond appropriately to them. And, you know, Afer and I, you and I were talking about people's needs earlier, um, but it's more about responding to their needs during change in terms of, of us having needs to be that need fulfilling. And I was, if I was to explain the transition curve, a simplified version of the transition curve, which is useful for business, is one where we might see people who are actually, they're going through this stage where you start out in, in denial. Um, and when we're in denial about something, we might think, oh, if I give my head down for long enough, it's all going to go away. So when we announce a business change, a reorganization, a restructure, it'll all go away. And I remember clearly, and I don't know if it was quite the same with you guys over in Ireland. Um, I've got uh, you know, a very good friend of mine who's, who's over there. And I think you were kind of straight into lockdown in quite a deeper way in some ways. But over here um, in the UK, there was lots of sort of rebellion against Boris's language. You know, people going, well, you know, sunbathing is fine in the park during lockdown. The way in which people were interpreting things that were being communicated, it's all a hoax, this denial type, um, which was going on with people in terms of, yeah, well, actually, there were business leaders who were really insisting that people carry on coming into the office. In those circumstances, they were really in denial about what was going on. And the thing about denial is people carry on behaving as if nothing has happened. So we don't necessarily, uh, it's easy to miss actually. In fact, one of the biggest issues with denial is that people um, who are initiating the change, they mistake it for people being committed to change because they're acting like everything's fine um, and, and, and they're not complaining about it. So denial is an initial stage and I think we have to be quite alert to that. That's when people don't really think they've done anything and, and they, if they are consciously considering something, uh, they think the change is going to go away. And the problem with that with cultural or organisational change is that you're not actually going to get anything to happen. Um, so if you were implementing a new software system, people are going to carry on behaving in the old way. And we might be thinking that they've bought into it just because they're not complaining. But in actual fact, they're going to do nothing. And that's where cultural change comes in. So the interesting thing about that is if we can then, um, if we want to encourage people to move out of denial, then what we need to do 
is be very clear about the future. We need to challenge people's behaviours in terms and so actually call them out, but maybe in a constructive way, we say, actually, we do need to behave differently and these are the sort of behaviours we need to see differently. Um, in these circumstances, we might need to paint a very clear vision of what's happening. We might want to tell them why the change is necessary. So a lot of this is about communication. And as uh, leaders in an organisation, we need to help people understand understand and motivate the change in both a towards and away uh, way. So the carrot and the stick. So we might try and inspire people that this change is is you know it's worthwhile and exciting and etc. That's a little bit difficult with the pandemic. Um, I mean, and I suppose the closest they did over here in the UK was save the NHS was the strap lines. That's trying to inspire people. Um, I don't know what your equivalent, did you have an equivalent over there Aoife, in terms of the language? Yeah, like supporting the front line, basically lighting candles, standing out on the street, that kind of thing. Um, Clapping to people. Yeah, yeah. very early on in, in the pandemic. Yeah. I haven't seen a huge amount of that now. Um, probably for lockdown for us that was, yeah. so. but the point was about that was trying to create something positive and then the, the, you know, the, the, the avoid thing if, if you don't if we don't do this it's going to take longer to come out of it obviously people get ill uh, there's a, a negative which is uh, yeah the analogy here is with the pandemic let's hope let's just keep it in the workplace if we don't do this we might go out of business if we don't make this organisational change uh, we won't be profitable and be able to pay bonuses next year so it doesn't all have to be life and death like the pandemic but the point is to pull people out of denial we need to challenge the way they're behaving and set clear expectations and have a sort of a vision which is a both a towards and away vision for people and if we pull them out of denial what then happens is they go into resistance which if you're the change leader might feel a bit painful really because resistance is where people start complaining um, and they start asking questions and they might say well you know I can't possibly work remotely because I don't have the tools I've got my kids at home I haven't got time to do this it's not realistic I can't possibly wear a mask um, to do xyz so people push back at that. So that's a natural thing for people to do. Again, interestingly, in the workplace, if you think about a restructure, people going, well, that'll never work. Um, you know, that's not fair. The unions, where you might have negotiations with unions and who are saying all the reasons why this, this isn't going to be effective. It's quite a past, it's very much anchored in the past. They're not looking to the future um, possibilities, but they are complaining why, why things won't work. That for me is if you could recognise that that is actually progress from denial, you've gone into the second stage of the change curve, it can help you go through it and realise it's a very natural place for us to be. Now, you know, in things like grief, we might say, well, things will never be the same again. We focus on what we've lost. So it's a bit of a, you know, a sad stage for people where they really don't want to believe what's going on. So we need to have empathy in this stage with people. We need to um, empathise there for their emotions, allow them to express their concerns, uh, which are there. And we may or may not need to fix things, but we allow them and make them feel heard. If we do that and with our sort of empathic listening, we continue to help them understand the why of the change, the fact that really there's no option for this change not to happen, then that helps them buy into the change. And, and ultimately, with time, they then will naturally start to flip from being very past oriented to go, okay, so, well, what's in it for me? So what could the future hold? And as, as soon as people start moving from very much uh, past-orientated questions, 
into future-oriented questions. And we can also help them, not just through empathy, but also saying, well, could you see any upside from this? Or, or what possibilities might come out of this situation? Um, you know, those sort of things. Uh, you know, what, what are the best priorities for me to work on right now if you're in the COVID times? Well, how can we stay motivated when we're working remotely? Uh, what's the best collaboration technology for us to use? Uh, you know, again, going back a year ago when we were all just learning to do that. Those, all of those questions are, they're still quite vocal and they're still quite demanding for us as a change, as when we're leading the change, but they're future oriented and they help us therefore to indicate people in more future. And if we build on those and you know, perhaps say, well, which do, you, which do you prefer or how could we solve this? And we start to use maybe coaching questions, which are more positive and future oriented. We can we can tempt them through this transition curve and they get onto the right-hand side. So if I'm visualizing, we had denial at the top left, we have resistance at the bottom left, exploration is over on the bottom right. So we're moving over onto that right-hand side of the curve where people are starting to think about the future. And then gradually we can coax them further up as we answer their questions, we empower them, we help them buy into things. They then start to get to grips with the, with the future. I mean, let's face it, jumping on a Zoom call now and video conference, we're all, most of us, second nature, isn't it? Whereas a year ago, putting your camera on, ah, you must be joking. Um, we've, we've, we've all got used to it. We're committed now. And I think many of us go, why wouldn't you want to, to you know, use, rather than have to travel, you know, I know how, how, I know how many miles you can, hours you can put in traveling all over Ireland, um, you know, rather than traveling three hours to go somewhere that's not all that far away, why can't we just jump on a, on a, uh, a collaboration tech meeting and, and have a conversation and, and be more productive that way. And uh, so we can do this. And we're now committed to the fact that actually certain ways of working are better um, in this new way. But we've moved through that transition curve. So it took time. And there were times when many of us are in denial. And that experience is the same for anyone in any change. It's just the pace at which we move through it. And we can go backwards. There's always things which can set us back, for example. Yeah, the internet's gone down. Oh, this will never work. You know, I, my broadband in my area is shocking. I can't make it work. So we've always got to be kind of coaxing people around. But the key thing is for us as um, as leaders in an organization is being prepared to recognize that those different types of response are entirely natural. And if we can adapt our style, depending on where we, we believe people are in that change curve, we're going to help them come through to commitment. Um, and we're going to, if you're looking at culture change, we're going to achieve more as a result by going through there. Brilliant. So it's, it's so interesting. And I am familiar with Kubler-Ross from my masters, we included that in, in one of our group projects. It was, uh, yeah, we used that that model, that template for an organizational change ourselves, which was, I think, at the time, quite unique, quite a unique approach to take. Um, but yeah, no, really, really interesting model. And I mean, like, so we've gone through this already at speed, let's say, and you know, and maybe looking into the future, what does that look like? Because I know a lot of companies will have gone through a massive change and, and maybe we kind of keep a focus more on the culture side of things. How maybe to maintain that or how to manage that culture ongoing after going through that period of change. So maintain the culture that we had or maintain the culture that we have now. Um, 
looking forward to when things and I don't I don't want to say go back to normal because I don't think things are going back to normal but when people start returning to work returning to offices and the impression I get is most organizations will be offering two to three days working from home so most people will be who who typically work in an office will be working uh, in a hybrid type of situation. So I'd love to get your thoughts around those kind of different elements, which is very, very pertinent to what we're going through at the moment. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? So if we were saying, how do we want our organisation to respond to the change or what do we want it to to be? Um, I mean, there's loads of models that I find really useful. One of the ones we talk about is in, in more of a change where you might look at leading a change, um, which would be the Cotter model. But that's more probably taking people through a, a series of, of steps. When you're talking about culture change, there's lots of um, tools that you can use to, to think about culture for me, because I think I find it quite a nebulous concept. I think it's quite a, a, a challenging one to think about. And I'm working with quite a few clients. I don't think we know the answer to how things are going to be going forwards. But um, I was talking to someone recently where they were saying that they are, they've consulted with people. And whereas previously they had been 100% office-based culture, um, they have decided they, that what employees have said they want is they want to have the choice and so in this particular situation, some people, they're going to give people the choice of either being entirely home-based, entirely office-based or hot-desking in, you know, in a certain number of days a week. And as soon as they've kind of done that, that sounds quite, oh, that sounds great, quite simplistic. Then some of the managers have said, well, hang on a minute, how am I supposed to know whether they're working or not? Or what's their, what, if, you know, what if I don't want them to be home-based, I want them in the office? So it, it's not that simple. And it's going to be a transition phase, isn't it, in terms of what's right. But one tool that I think would be quite um, a useful tool for people to, to look at is the uh, concept of the cultural web. And that um, is Johnson, Scholes and Whittingham's. I've just had to look that up, the cultural web. If, um, if anyone wants to access this, I've got... Um, if you go on the website www.changesuperhero.com, I have a toolkit of resources that relate to the book, and they have actually got a cultural web um, download. But basically, the cultural web he he talks about it as we've got these organisational paradigms, and maybe we had a paradigm which was we can only be effective when we're office based. Maybe that was the organisational paradigm, and with that, there would be certain structures that are in place, certain hierarchies, there'd be certain rituals and routines around coffee, you know, who gets the coffee in the morning, where do you pop and where do you go for coffee, um, for refreshments and meeting in the canteen and things like that. There'll be various stories and myths around, uh, you know, when you work at home. I remember um, the first organisation I worked in, I really wanted to work remotely and they just weren't set up for it. My manager at the time just could not think even though I was just driving into an office to do a job I could have done anywhere. And that was actually interesting, one of the reasons why I left that business. And I went to a business which actually homeworking was standard. And they just and they assumed they just needed to measure you against outputs. So there's this, whether or not there's a it's do you have a story? Is it stories and myths? Oh, they're working working from home in inverted commas, which is code for skiving. Or is it, um, you know, they're, they're working from home and actually you'll be able to get hold of them and, and are they working from home because that's the only day they manage to get things done because they haven't got meetings so there'll be things like that it looks at things in terms of the symbols within an organization whether people have the right let's say the setup but do they have monitors at home are they provided with things that uh, support support homeworking let's say rituals and routines power structures so essentially this cultural web 
it, it breaks it down into six areas that you could look at and you could say, right, how does my organization currently fit in relation to remote working or hybrid working as is. So if you think about that as an as is, and then you go, okay, what would the to be look like that if we went forward in 12 months time and this hybrid form of working with, what would be the stories and myths there? What would be the power structures? What would be those things? And then you could basically do a gap analysis and think about what would we need to do to make that move? So that would be a practical tool that I think you could use in an organization if you wanted to make that move uh, from a certain way of working to, to from a now to a future way of working, it might be quite practical. Um, but with all of these things, there's many tools that you can look look at in terms of, of, of culture. So it's, that one for me probably fits the best in terms of a culture change. Mm. No, I, I love everything that you said there. I particularly like this concept of organizational paradigms because I've heard of paradigms before, but more from a personal and a personal development perspective. Mm. So it's really interesting. And it's about this paradigm shift then within an organization. So changing the beliefs that people have within the organization so that we can actually move towards this new way of working. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned something specifically about being measured against outputs. So it's more... Yeah, it's not that people are working from home and they're skiving. I think there was a little bit of that at the start of the pandemic where, you know, some of the stories, well, one story in particular I read on BBC about a manager who wanted his employees to have their Zoom open all day long so he could monitor them. You know, and it's this, it's complete presenteeism. Just because you're there in front of your computer doesn't mean that you're actually working. Um, so, yeah, bringing, you know, and I'm trying to kind of beat the drum on, on this message as well of measuring outcomes. And this has come up on the podcast quite a lot. And in one very interesting conversation I had last year with Andrew Barnes from the four day week, he he said that he was questioned by someone and said, but, you know, if we're trying to look at productivity and we're reducing our work hours, but how how do we then measure whether or not people are being productive? And he said, well, how are you measuring it now? And it's like, oh, well, we're not. And I'm like, okay, well, then you're not going to be able to look at the difference. And if you're not measuring it anyway in a very uh, concrete or very realistic way, if you're just looking at the hours that people invest, the hours that people <laughs> spend at work, that is not showing you whether or not people are uh, productive. producing the outputs or the yeah. outcomes that you're looking for. I couldn't agree more. And, and that's one of the things that's really come to light here in the work that we've been doing where uh, so, and again, if you think about it, that is actually the fear of that particular manager who's saying, well, how will I know if they're um, doing their job? It's like, well, how do you, you know now? Just because they were sitting in front of you does not mean that, that they were productive. Presenteeism was a substitute for poor for performance management. And what, what I think uh, someone said that they said, you know, the poor managers, well, so the great managers before were still great managers when they moved remotely, but the poor pe- the poor managers, and in fairness to managers, there's, uh, you know, particularly in the UK, I've got to say that the actual development or training that people have had is really lacking in terms of, you know, people management. So we've had quite a lot of, uh, of, of interest in our remote people management course, it's almost remote management 101 um, that they've needed because um, people, t- they've never been given those skills and therefore they kind of mistake the title 
for skills and it, it isn't the same thing. And so the, the, the main thing, actually, if we want remote working to work and is if we want to measure outputs, let's give managers the skills to do that uh, is, is what I would say and ensure that and, and set them up for success in, in, in that way and not just assume that we know how to do it just because we had the title and we had them in the office. Actually, there was poor management practice going on then. It's just the case that it's more exposed when we're in more of a virtual environment. Yeah. And you, to be honest, you're not the first person to say that to me, that this remote working has kind of highlighted the difference between good management and really poor management. The poor managers are really suffering badly and or should I say that the employees who are working under the poor the, the terrible managers are suffering. Whereas good leadership I think has really you know shone a, a really strong light on this is what it means to be a really, really good leader. And I totally agree with giving managers the skills to be able to actually manage through that. I'd love to understand a little bit more about that and what you offer in the course as well. Yes, I I mean fundamentally people managers, very few people managers have have been given the self-awareness in the first place in terms of do they know what their natural style is, what their preference is. I have a a personal, um, I have a personal view on whether or not line managers have even the natural attributes in terms, I call it the people gene. You do see pockets of people, let's say in an engineering organisation where the best engineer becomes the line manager and they're not in the slightest bit motivated by people. And the same in sales, I find as well. Sales is the worst. Yes, actually, because the best salesperson is hardly ever, you know, they are motivated by goals and results and People management, frankly, is a distraction for them, something that gets in the way. You've also got issues in professional services organisations where, you know, actually time is money. So people management, spending any sort of time on, on people management is, is uh, you know, if, if they're earning £600 an hour or something ridiculous, €600 Euros or whatever it might be, then that's something that uh, it, it pulls people away from spending that time on people management. So, Certainly, what what um, I found is in we we have a simple four module program, and actually we've got some e learning we've built along so it aligned with remote management. Uh, the model I talk about is a perform model of people management. So first of all, it's people first. That's a difference in terms of if we're going to manage our people effectively um, as remote managers, then we need to. Um, know ourselves as, per, as a person and be prepared to invest that bit of time in people. And that is one of the fundamental things that I think the, the pandemic taught us, that well-being, you know, we have to accept that people are people, they have kids, they have animals, you know, that, that appear in places. We suddenly had to accept the whole person rather than be as transactional as we were able to be before potentially. Then in terms of my perform model, I talk about the next bit being expectations. And this is what links to outputs. If we haven't been clear about what the outputs are for, for somebody in an organization, um, you know, if we haven't got clear objectives and goals, then how can they possibly be successful? So set them up for success. And with those expectations in the remote world, it's really, really important for us to make sure that people um, have maybe milestones. So because we're, we're remote, then break them down. So if you think back to if we did set expectations pre- previously, then we may well have set uh, objectives that last for a whole year, right? So so you know, they're not broken down. But in a remote environment, we need to make sure they're things that can be reviewed on a weekly or monthly basis. So it keeps us, we're still empowered um, and we can be autonomous, but we can review them on that weekly or monthly basis. 
The R of the perform is regular review. So we have to talk to people regularly and it must be, it might be virtual, but it needs to be consistent. So people are linking again into people's need for autonomy or their skill levels. The review should be appropriate to their skill levels or need for autonomy to make sure that they stay on track and they still have one-to-ones and one-to-ones should be touching on things like well-being as well. Feedback and development. We have to help people know if they're doing a good job or not. Many organisations and many, many managers are scared of giving quality feedback. And the key with that is, um, I'm going to talk a bit about that in the R of recognise, is that we've, made, again, maybe never been taught how to be specific. So maybe we don't know how to notice specific behaviours. And, and they might say, well, just because people are remote, they say, well, I don't know. How can I possibly give people feedback? Well, actually, there's plenty that we can see. If we're measuring outputs, we can see people's outputs. Are they delivering things on time? Are they responsive? Uh, how do they interact on team calls? There's plenty of behavioural evidence there. We just need better to look for it. And I, I was about to, to say there, if you follow the model as you've outlined it and you set really clear expectations, then it should be very easy to give specific feedback against it. And it's a crucial part of being really clear and being really specific about what those expectations actually are. So it's not actually to work from 9am to 5pm with one hour for lunch and try and take some breaks throughout the day as well. It's about setting clear guidelines and expectations of I need, this is as a business what we're delivering and your part to play within that is you need to deliver this, this and this by this date uh, or by today. And like you say, are they delivering on time? Are they delivering quality, but also not getting too wrapped up in trying to perfect things either that, you know, I have this tendency, you can spend hours on presentations that you really, it doesn't really add that much to it. Um, so yeah, no, really, really interesting. So there's obviously 80, 20 rule, isn't there? So, but then again, so that's something is if as a line manager, you need to know that if you're managing Aoife, she might get stuck because she wants it to be perfect. Yeah. And you might say that 80% is fine. Whereas you're managing Lucinda, she might, she might make mistakes because she's a bit slapdash, right? So, so it's knowing those differences and adapting your style to, to those and working with people. Absolutely. But your point about if you've got clear expectations, as in smart objectives and smart, I, you know, Many people think they know the acronym, but it's actually very hard to write a quality smart objective. Mm. If we look at behavioural science, there is nothing that drives performance more effectively than clear goals and regular feedback. And so that is that is the recipe. And managers are not in the habit of doing this. They've never been taught how to do it. And maybe they're a bit nervous a, a, about how they do it. So so giving managers the skills to set clear goals and regular objectives, uh, sorry, get regular feedback, that will drive performance. It needs to be happening on a regular basis. Um, and that's the, same, that's the same for remote or in the office, but it's more, the frequency just needs to be a bit more frequent in the, in when we're remote because, you know, we are out of sight, so we can't ask that incidental conversation. So we need that greater clarity in the first place. And that's why people now at this stage, a year in, are doing appraisals for the first time and they're realising it's an absolute nightmare because they hadn't set any objectives in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't want that to happen, yeah. make, learn from our mistakes, let's set some objectives. Or they didn't Just know briefly. what they were supposed to be doing. <laughs> exactly. Just briefly, I'll run through the end of the perform piece and that's just the model that hangs. So in terms of our training programme, that this just this goes through the four modules. Um, so we've talked about people first, expectations, regular review, feedback and development. And then I talk about it's ownership culture, recognition, recognise and then manage performance. 
So the ownership culture is as having a coaching style. Because again, if we're remote, then we need to coach people to check they understand and they have accountability. So it's all very well. I might have been quite a directive manager, just do it my way previously. But actually, um, in a remote setting, I need to be more, you know, what do you understand the job to be? What do you think you need to do? If I use coaching questions, then the chances are the person I'm talking to, we both know that we're on the same page. So you've got your ownership piece. So coach for accountability, recognition, make sure you're catching people doing things right. You know, we don't know what the stresses and strains are, you know, some real positives. Um, it, it really it really help people to, with specific feedback about recognition, it is key to, to helping people feel engaged and motivated and sustained in a remote environment. And then finally, manage performance. Again, something that many managers are poor at. That's actually easy if you've been setting objectives to your point earlier. If you're setting objectives, giving feedback, you shouldn't have underperformance issues. But the point of it is, is just nipping things in the bud. And that usually comes back to clarity. Yeah, clarity, so, but providing specific feedback for, you know, not just saying you did a good job with this, but being very specific about what was good about that job or what needs to be uh, improved. And I heard this really great term on a podcast I listened to a few months ago, and I've been using this myself. Uh, and it's this concept of telling people what they did well, but then if you want them to improve in a specific area, you say, well, it would be even better if next time you did this, this, and this. And I love that that as a phrase. I think it's just, it's just brilliant. Yeah. It's a really nice way. It's not like this is what you did really poorly. It would just be better if you did something else differently or you, you added this to it or something like that. Um, Brilliant. I really, really love all of those points. Is there anything else that you'd like to, I'm, I'm conscious that we started talking about change and we sort of veered off more towards management, management and managers. Yeah. And, but I think it's really, really important because I, I reckon that we are going to, there is going to be a big change as people start moving back towards getting into this hybrid. And I, I like this idea that you have of, okay, what is the gap between where we are now, which is mostly remote to this hybrid model going forward. But is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to get across in relation specifically to remote working? I, I think we've probably covered, uh, there's, there's so many things that we can talk about. What, what I suppose I'd say is it's about us stepping back and thinking about what's right for our organisation and for our people uh, and drawing on the tools. There are loads of tools out there. Um, there's loads of experience out there, drawing on tools and then, applying our common our common sense really because a lot of the content that we've built it's really just going okay it's not exact so we did a survey on manage, remote management and maybe this is the thing to close on is that remote management 55% of people found that it was or actually 95% of people said it was different or significantly different All right so everyone says it remote management it's not exactly the same as in the office but in reality and a number of people 55 percent said type people said it was taking longer it took longer at least initially because you have to check more understanding they were spending longer on, on the clarity and the understanding i think that might evolve as people move forward uh, but so it, it's it is slightly different but it's not completely different but the main thing is for us not be, to be blinkered it's maybe about to your point again we can all be even better managers if we are open-minded about how can we learn what do we need to do and 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 I suppose I would say that as as HR or leaders in organizations maybe have a think have you given your 
people the right skills and knowledge or you know a safe environment for them to reflect on whether they've got the right skills or knowledge to be successful in the future because if we are open-minded about it and maybe think what could we learn um, and it might be about managing people or it might be about you know choosing a new culture or it might be about our awareness of people's emotions through change all of these actually are I would say common sense management models that should be more more well known and more well utilized in the workplace and if they were everybody would feel happier at work because managers have got the right skills and the confidence they're doing a good job and employees would be feeling that they're being well managed um, as well. You've brought up a a few interesting points there that I would like to touch on and one of them is this idea of reflection and taking time out to actually reflect and that's away from the laptop. It could be out, you know, you could have a journal, you could have a scrap of paper and you're just getting, you know, taking time to actually think about it. The other element that you're talking about, it sounds like it's the knowing doing gap. So there, we know what we need to do, but we're not actually doing it. And like you say, there is so much information out there. I suppose one of my missions is coming from this academic background, let's say, for the last few years, it's how do you take that information that's out there? How do you take those studies and put it in the hands of people who actually need it? So I'm a total data and research nerd. I love doing research. I love analyzing data and making recommendations and solving problems. But it's, it's making sure that the people who need that information actually have it and can take practical action as a result of it. Um, So love all of that that you have to say. um, The question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, Lucinda, what makes you happier at work? Oh, well, my top value um, is about making a difference. And um, I have to say that the thing that's made me happier at work, running a small business, has been um, getting back into doing stuff that I um, I feel I'm better at. So I started out as a trainer and then I've been running a business. So I was doing more sales and leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And I've really loved the ability to train people virtually, generally, uh, genuinely, um, the ability to act, act, go back to feeling like I'm making a difference. Now, I, I feel I'm too long in the tooth to want to drive around the country and spend four days in the hotel running a training course. But I'm absolutely loving having the opportunity to do two-hour sessions with people and train them in stuff and see that I'm teaching them stuff that is really helping them. Yeah. Um, so having the opportunity to engage with people directly, um, you know, consulting and, and share some of the experience and knowledge and can see that it is actually adding value. That is the thing that um, I'm particularly enjoying. And actually that that opportunity has been presented to me due to the pandemic. It wouldn't have been, it wasn't realistic to do this sort of thing um, previously. Virtual training was was a very poor relation. Now I'm kind of going, why, who wouldn't want to do virtual training in two hour blocks? Um, it's far, far more practice. It's far more practical. Oh, definitely, definitely. And it's, yeah, one of the positives to come out of the, the pandemic for sure. And if people want to reach out to you, what is the best way they can do that? Uh, so find me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to to get me. So it's Lucinda Lucinda Carney is my name L U C I N D A Carney C A R N E Y. Um, the website there's also links to me through our website, which is www.actus.co.uk. That's A C T U S. And also the HR Uprising podcast, of course, you can catch me through that. And the HRUprising.com. There's lots of content there um, that you can allude to. And obviously, I'll give you the links because I think I've thrown I've link dropped a little bit through this um, podcast, Eva. Um, so I'll send you over the links if people want the Change Superhero Toolkit or otherwise. 
That sounds great. And I'll add everything into the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time today. And absolutely loved the conversation. As always, could be chatting for hours about all this kind of stuff. And I hope to speak to you again soon in the future. Fantastic, Eva. Thank you so much for, for having me on. That was Lucinda Carney, host of the HR Uprising podcast and founder and CEO of Actus Software. We had a wonderful conversation. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to get involved and share your thoughts or questions, you can do so over on LinkedIn where we will be answering questions. And I also go weekly live on LinkedIn as well with that week's podcast guest uh, to discuss the podcast, answer any questions and comments and give a sneak peek really of what to expect if you haven't listened to the podcast just yet. Lucinda and I started by talking about change and specifically culture change and what has happened in the last year and a bit. And we spoke about the Kubler-Ross transition curve or this is, it's really the, the different stages of grief. And I, I do recall this from, from college. We used that as one of our assignments last year. So it's quite an interesting perspective. And in Lucinda's case, it's kind of a condensed version and it's, res- it's about responding to needs during change. So the first area is around this concept of denial. So um, we want to encourage people to move out of denial by painting a clear vision, why it's necessary to motivate the change, inspire, challenge behaviour and set really clear expectations. Then number two is resistance. And that's when people start complaining and they start pushing back. And this is all a natural part of the process. And it's about demonstrating empathy, making people feel heard, understand the why. And there is this natural flip to what's in it for me. So what does the future hold? Can you see any upside to it and how can we actually solve this together? Number three then is exploration and that's all about thinking about the future. And then number four is committed. So that's being committed to the new ways of working. It can also go backwards. So it's not just a straight kind of like you go from one to the next to the next. It can actually revert backwards as well. Um, And as leaders, we need to be prepared to adapt our style to whatever stage we are, are at during this change process. Now, we moved on the conversation then to talk specifically about some some aspects of managers and and specifically some of the challenges that managers have had during this crisis. So oftentimes, you know, you hear these stories of managers not wanting people to work from home. And really, it's about embracing the shift that we're seeing in how organisations work. And I loved what she had to say about measuring against outputs, or it could also be interpreted as measuring against outcomes. So set really clear expectations for the team and measure people against those. Remove Moving away from this whole nine to five, we're embracing more flexible working. And in that, it is about trusting people, setting clear expectations and measuring against what those expectations are. And we really need to give managers the skills to work remotely. And again, relating back to my own situation and stories that I've heard from clients is that managers who were very command and control have actually gotten worse during this time and and leaders who have been really, really effective pre-COVID have continued to be so. So I'd love to get your perspective on what you've experienced yourself. 
We mentioned as well about self-awareness and having that personal style, like the people gene, we called it. And having that level of self-awareness, I think, improves how people manage. Doing a recap then on what Lucinda mentioned about her PERFORM program. So number one is people first, and that's about investing in people. Number two is expectations. So expectations around outputs, objectives, goals, and reviewing those. Number three then is having that regular review. So making sure that it's consistent, that it's appropriate for the the skill level, and it gives people a sense of autonomy. Number four then is feedback and development. And don't be afraid to give people feedback. Make sure that it's really, really specific. Number five then is ownership culture, and that's using a coaching style. Number six is recognizing people for their achievements. And number seven is managing performance. And as you go through each one of these different steps, it builds on your skills. And by the time you get to number seven, which is managing performance, it should come quite naturally to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.